Good morning again, everyone. Glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the epistles of John. We're in third John this morning. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, just raise your hand. And uh, we got guys, uh, Greg and Calvin, have Bibles in their hand. They'd love to bring you one. So just raise your hand and they'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Book of third John. It's right after the book of second John. Right before Jude, if that's any help. (laughs) I still hear some pages turning. It's a good sound. Pastors like to hear that sound. All right, let's go ahead and read. What John writes here, starting in verse 1. The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prodding against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. We also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. The time I study this morning is what manner of person am I? Or the tale of three men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, and to know, Lord, that you are here in our midst, and through your word you desire to speak to each one of our hearts, Lord, in a practical way, in a way that would cause us to grow closer to you in our relationship with you, Lord, to, uh, Lord, to hear from you if there's any needs and areas in our lives that we need to address. Lord, we know that your word will accomplish that this morning. We know that it will set, it will do what it's set forth to do. It will not return void to us. So we thank you for this time this morning. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us this morning that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, Maybe they're not saved, they're not born again, they don't have their sin forgiven. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today, that they would see, Lord, their need for you, and they would turn towards you this morning. We thank you for this time, we commit it to you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today's the day, it's Super Bowl Sunday. That got me thinking about the different mascots that they have for NFL football. You know, they have the big cat division. The Jaguars, the Panthers, the Lions, and the Bengals. But then they also have the big bird division. Eagles and Falcons and Seahawks and Ravens and Cardinals. You also have the Cowboys and the Indians. 
They have a buffalo, a dolphin, and a saint. Oh, and a horse, and a bull, and a ram. But what I really feel bad for is, is a team that they don't really have a mascot. I mean, but in reality, who could they have? I mean, think about the Green Bay Packers. What kind of mascot can you have with that? Some guy working in a packing house packing cheese? I, I don't know. Actually, they ha- I read it one time, they had one. It was called Packy Packer. He's a sort of cartoonish man wearing an apron and a helmet. Ooh, intimidating, huh? Are the Cleveland Browns. Can you imagine having a mascot that's just a color? Oh, we're the Browns. Yeah. I know it's named after former coach Paul Brown, but why then are their colors orange? I, I, that doesn't make sense. Then you have the San Francisco 49ers. And because the San Francisco is known for their sourdough bread, they have sourdough Sam. Never knew that until just right now. He's called Sourdough Sam. Or the Pittsburgh Steelers, their mascot, a real steel worker. I mean, that guy's pretty scary looking. Then, of course, today, we have the, our Super Bowl team, the Patriots and the Falcons. Now, based on the mascots, I think the Patriots will win. I, I don't know. Just looking at the Falcon there, it's not very intimidating. All that to say, if you were a mascot, something that would represent who you are, what would you be? A lion, proud, powerful, a stealer, strong and hardworking, or maybe a dolphin, kind of slimy and always making funny, irritating noises. I, I don't know. <laughs> Here's my point. We're not mascots or animals. We're Christians. And as Christians, we come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, with all different gifts and different personalities. I mean, all you got to do is look around this room and you can see the diversity but what truly matters is not how you look on the outside, but what manner of person you are on the inside. See, manner is the key word. Webster defines it this way, the way that a person normally behaves, especially while with other people. See, we're called to evangelize, but how do we do that? We're called to study the Word of God, but how do we do that? We're called to worship. How do we do that? Well, it's interesting because we do things differently. You know, when it comes to worship, some of you worship just by closing your eyes and maybe singing quietly to yourself. Some worship with your voices. Some worship just by listening to and agreeing in the heart with the songs. Some of you worship by raising your hands, as Tim Hawkins would say, you know, I caught a fish this big, Lion King, touchdown. You have seen that before. Or when it comes to evangelism, some of us do it with, with, with much passion, but not with much compassion. Listen, if you don't accept Christ right now, you're going to burn in hell. Ooh, you know. But then there's the opposite, where there's so much compassion, there's no evangelism. Oh, we just love everybody and want to help you. Let's not talk about eternity or heaven or hell or sin. That's too offensive. Be careful, Christian. Because we are supposed to evangelize, but we're to do it with compassion and grace and mercy. My point is, again, we are all different. And when it comes to what we do in the body of Christ, what truly matters, again, is not on the outside, but what manner of person you are on the inside. And that's a subject of manner that we're going to look at this morning as we look here at Third John. You know, it's not unusual for people to wonder what manner of persons were involved in the early church. What were they like? I mean, we know a lot about the early church leaders. We know about Paul and Peter and even John after studying his epistles. But what about the average Christian back then? Were they more spiritual than we are today? Did they experience the same kind of problems that we face today that we see so often in churches today? I mean, several books of the New Testament reflect the life of the early church, and this is especially true of 3 John. 
See, it's a private letter. It's a letter between John and a Christian named Gaius. It provides portraits of three different men. And so doing, it gives us a glimpse of first century life in the early church, in the local church. And we find, as we look at this letter, that there's not much difference between them and us today. Therefore, this letter is very relevant, though we may you know, live some almost 2,000 years later. So with that said, John is writing a letter about three people that are addressed in this short 14 verses. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see number one, an encourager, number two, an egotist, and number three, an example. Gaius, he's going to be, uh, has the manner of an encourager. Diotrephes has the manner of an egotist. And Demetrius has the manner of an, an example, a good example. But first, our first guy is Gaius. I don't know if they called him Guy for short. I, I probably would, but... But he's an encourager, number one. Look at verses one and two. John writes, The elder to the beloved guys whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. John begins by introducing himself as the elder. Now he was an elder in the sense of a leader in the church, a presbyter, you know, but more than that, he was old. I mean, somewhere in his, in his nineties and yet he's still going strong. Let me say, there's something to be said uh, for the wisdom that comes from guys, from gals that have been in the ministry a long time and, and, and be able to glean off of all they have learned and be able to, to sit and to listen to these folks. So John said, this is from the elder, the old guy, to the beloved Gaius. Now this is the same John we've been studying who at one time wanted to bring fire down on people. Do you recall that? Uh, I love that, that this ex-hothead, ex-fisherman, starts this letter out with, I love you, man. You know, just this letter, well, I love you, man. That's obviously been his heart because it, it, his heart's been so touched and so transformed by Jesus Christ that love is that central part of his life. And now he wants to let Gaius know just how much he loves and appreciates him, so he calls him the beloved Gaius. That word beloved, it's a New Testament word that's used often of a person who has a unique relationship of faithfulness to the Lord. It's more than just a greeting or a surface kind of relationship. It's a special type of relationship. Remember when God spoke about Jesus, it was, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's the same love that God has for us. He calls us his beloved. So John says of guys whom I love in truth. Now, immediately that tells us that Gaius was, was a man of sound doctrine. He was a, a man of, of the Word, a man who loved the Word of God. And then John prays for him in verse 2. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, that's an interesting verse. Because if you don't know this, this is a favorite catch verse for the health and wealth, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it folks that are out there today. It's the faith teachers or the health and wealth teachers or the prosperity teachers. People like Joel Olstein, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, just to name a few. These teachers, they'll take this verse and they'll quote it completely out of context. They'll look at it and they'll say, well, verse 2 is proof text that Christians should all be healthy and, and enjoy wealth and, 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 and Christians should never be sick and they should walk in perfect healing and, and 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, you know, 12 months out of the year. But what they willingly neglect or just by the, the fact that they don't understand their Bible and Bible interpretation is number one, that this was simply a common greeting when John wrote this epistle. 
He's not saying that every Christian should be healthy and wealthy. But then, then number two, understand this is not a principle here, but it's, it's a prayer. John says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things. See, the question we have to ask ourselves when it comes to health, when it comes to wealth, what, what is health and the purpose of it? What is real wealth? I mean, let me say quite honestly that here in the United States, we are a very, very wealthy nation. We are a very wealthy people. How wealthy? Well, as you know, this evening around 5.30, American companies today will pay for just a 30-second commercial during the Super Bowl, $5 million for 30 seconds. There's about 35 commercials during the Super Bowl. $175 million is going to go to just that and just advertising. But then personally, you know, most of us put the rest of the world at poverty level based on our smallest of incomes. And then when it comes to health, if we look to the Word of God, we see from time to time that when we face seasons of sicknesses in our life, that we actually, it's drawing us closer to our God. God wants to get our attention, and many times He will use sickness to do just that. Because if you're in perfect health, and we know that at those times, we don't pay much attention to God as much as we do we should. But man, when you're in sick sickness, and when you're in pain, Man, oh Lord, help, maker of heaven and earth, friend of mine, help, take this sickness away, take this pain away from me. But if there's no pain, if there's continual prosperity and pleasure that I found in my life, it may be true in yours, I don't know if we talk to God as much as and often as we should. Now certainly, I think we would all like to see ourselves prosper financially and always to be healthy, but using this particular verse as proof text that God wants everyone healthy and everyone wealthy, I struggle with that. I don't see that at all. Because whenever we look to the Word of God, we don't want to take a single verse and, and out of context. But when we keep it in context, we hear the heart of the writer. What's the heart of the writer? Well, if we read all 14 verses, we see it's very clear. He's commending Gaius that although he is very, very good and healthy spiritually, he would like to see his body and his finances as good as his spirit is. Now, I know this is just speculation, but quite possibly Gaius is not doing that good physically. Maybe he's not doing that well financially. But because he's doing so well spiritually, John has this prayer for him. In other words, John is saying, Gaius, I just want you to know that I know that your body isn't doing that well physically. I know that you're struggling financially. But man, what a blessing it is to me to see that you're doing so great spiritually. And I do pray that your physical life does just as well as your spiritual life. That's my prayer. See, I don't struggle with that. That makes sense to me in light of Scripture. Now think about this just for a moment. Imagine if this prayer was prayed for you or this prayer was prayed for me. If someone prayed, Tom, I pray that you would be just as strong and healthy physically as you are spiritually. Oh, would we be sick and anemic? <laughs> you know, would that be what our spiritual life is like? Or would we be strong and healthy? John prayed that Gaius' physical life would be as strong as his spiritual life was. Now, did God answer that prayer? Well, listen, we don't know. But listen carefully. It's a prayer, not a principle. It's a prayer, not a principle. And I believe it's a damnable heresy for anyone to imply that those who are sick or disabled lack faith or those who are poor are second-rate believers. You see, the great part about Gaius is that though he may be struggling with his health, struggling with his finances... He is still glorifying God. He is still honoring God. He's blessing those that are around him. 
And listen, I have seen people in our own fellowship do the same thing. Those that are experiencing great times of pain and suffering will minister to me and minister to the elders as they come up for prayer after service and they say, I just need some prayer and, and they let me know what's going on in their life and go, man, but we see that they're still blessing God and they're still glorifying God with their life. That blesses me. That blesses the elders. They go, man, look at this guy. Look at this gal. Man. See, that's what exactly Gaius is doing. But then John goes on more about Gaius. Look at verse 3 when he says, for I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. There's an old saying that goes, God loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. See, in verse 3, John is rejoicing in the fact that he's heard that Gaius not only has the truth in him, but he's walking in the truth. He's growing in the truth. You know, I've had people come to me in the past and they'll say, Tom, you know, years ago, I responded to an invitation that you gave and, and to receive Christ as my Lord and, and my Savior. And, and I did. And I went home and I shared with my wife and, and she accepted the Lord and we shared with our kids and they're walking with the Lord. And now I'm leading my own home Bible study or I, I'm, I'm, you know, working in this ministry or that ministry. You know how blessed that makes a person feel? I mean, this, this was Gaius. Gaius was probably one of John's converts. And now he's growing consistently and he had this, this steady walk with the Lord and he's being used by the Lord. It wasn't some mountaintop experience and then dropping out and forgetting all about the Lord. So when John heard of those growing in the faith, it blessed John. And John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I love that. My kids always ask me around my birthday time, around Christmas time, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for your birthday? I tell them, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And they'll tell you this. It's, I say every time. Oh, now they don't even ask me anymore because they know what I'm going to say. But that's my prayer for my kids. It should be the prayer for your kids that they walk in the truth of God's word. But notice, John keeps using that word again, truth. Truth. <coughs> I need a drink. And I'm choking on the word truth. No. Truth, truth, truth. Just like he did in Second John. To the elect lady whom I love in the truth. You follow the truth, he said. To Gaius, I love in the truth. John and Gaius had something in common. They both love the word of God. They can have that fellowship together, talking about, going through, digging into the word of God. Gaius was a lover of the truth. He meditated on the word of God. The scripture was his love and he walked personally according to verse 3 in the truth. On top of that, others were testifying in the fact that they could see that this guy is walking in the truth, walking with the Lord. People were coming out of church going, man, you know that guy, man, he's such a blessing. I mean, he stands up for the truth. He's not afraid to speak of it. He knows the word. He's consistent in his walk. That could do the same thing be said about you and I. What manner of person am I? Are you? Are we the same? But John even takes it a step further in verse 5. In commending guys, he says, verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. I mean, what an encourager this, this guy must have been in that church. God, uh, John is commending the fact that Gaius was a man of hospitality regardless of his health, regardless of his financial status. 
Now, what did he do to, to, to earn this, to, 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 for, for John to see this? Well, let me give you a little background. And that day, that time, you didn't have your local Holiday Inn Express to spend the night and know that you were somewhere safe and, and free from sin. No, you couldn't do that because most of the motels back then were, were hot spots for immorality. And because of that, the church was called upon to open up their homes for itinerant preachers that would go from city to city, from town to town, from church to church to preach. And so that's what Gaius did. He would open up his home. And so Gaius made it well known that if you were an itinerant preacher and if you wanted to stop by his house, even if he was going through financial struggles, even if he uh, was struggling with, with sickness, there's sickness in home, he would say, hey, come on in and welcome. Hopefully he had plenty of hand sanitizer in his home when he did that. But, but, but John says, this is so cool. He says, I love you, man, so much because while you're going through what you're dealing with, it hasn't stopped you from this gift of hospitality. You've opened up your, your home both to the brethren and to strangers, he says. Strangers? Listen to this, Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Some of you new to the Scriptures might be going, What? What's that? Where is that? Do you mean I might have talked to an angel? Listen, the Bible says when you open up your heart and your home to strangers, some people unwittingly have opened up their homes to angels. Now, I think, you know, maybe a lot of you here have had some angel story, you know. Well, I, I've entertained an angel, and here's what happened. You know, I, I know I, I have some. I think, well, that, that might have been an angel. But what does the Bible say? It says, if you did minister to an angel, you wouldn't know it was an angel. It's kind of strange, because if you think it was an angel, it probably wasn't. And if you didn't think it was an angel, it probably was. In fact, you could be sitting next to an angel right now. You say, Tom, that's, it's, it's not. It's my wife, you know. Are you saying she's no angel? Listen, any more than she is and you're not. But the point is this. There are plenty of opportunities for us to do just as guys did in ministering to people. And just one, maybe one time you might say, that was strange. Where did that person go that I was ministering to? Because we have have maybe unknowingly ministered to an actual angelic being. And after the fact... There's a reward that comes for it for doing so. I mean, think about that. God may put someone in your path to test you, an undercover angel, to see how you'll react. And then if you're hospitable, when you get to heaven, you're going to get a reward because you did what needed to be done. To me, that's a win-win situation. So now, we're all going to be looking at the new gal or guy that comes into the church and go, hmm, I wonder if they're an angel or not. Now, if you're a single guy and a cute girl comes in, you might say, I must be in heaven because I'm looking at an angel. Okay, that's not what it's talking about here. Okay, not the same thing. But here's my point in all this. Knowing this, knowing that we could be entertaining angels unaware, would that make you be more hospitable? It should. But the whole point is, it shouldn't matter. We're to be hospitable to all. That was Gaius. Now, notice next in verse 6 that Gaius was not just hospitable. He was also helpful. We read, verse 5 says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. Now look at verse 6. Who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. So Gaius, is, Gaius lets an itinerant preacher stay in his house. He's got that gift of hospitality. But then he takes it a step further and actually is so helpful that he sends them on their way and helps them get to their next destination. In other words, Gaius 
wasn't the type of guy that says, oh, you need help? Here's five bucks, now leave me alone. He wasn't the guy type of guy that says, oh, you need help? They'll call Salvation Army, ask them to help. In fact, he didn't even take anything from the Gentiles, the non-believers. Rather, guys helped them personally and sent them on forward on their way, despite of his, his health, despite of his, his money. I mean, but this is Gaius' heart. How can I help someone get from here to there? How can I help them move forward? In the same way, maybe there's someone in the body here that has a hard time getting to church. Maybe they have transportation problems. Could you pick them up? Could you, could you help them to get from here to there? Getting someone from here to there physically? How about helping getting someone from here to there spiritually? You see, there may be somebody in this room that perhaps has some Bible ignorance and you have some Bible insight. Is it, is it really all that helpful if you just keep all that insight to yourself? I mean, isn't it better to sit down with that person and share with them and help them in areas that they may be struggling to understand? Men, ladies, our men's studies, our women's studies, man, are a perfect place to sit down and to dig into God's Word. And, and some of the younger Christians, man, they're getting answers that they couldn't get anyplace else. Maybe they couldn't understand anyplace else. And the older Christians are coming in and they're sharing one with another God's truth. Man, and when you sit down and you share with them and you see the lights come on in their heads and they get it, what a blessing that is. It excites you as you're doing that. You're going, oh, this is what God's Word said. You go, oh, I get it. Yeah, you get it? Yeah, I get it. Oh, isn't that cool? Yeah, that's cool. And you get excited over that. And you begin to see them grow as you're helping them get from here to there. That's guys. And now, oh, as a pastor, I do pray that we have more guys in the church today. Now, in real clear contrast to guys, we have our next character. Dun, 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 dun. We go from an encourager to the real egotist. Point number two, Diotrephes. He's an egotist. Look at verses 9 and 10. I wrote to the church. In other words, John is saying, I wrote a previous letter. Now notice this. But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. I think if you're looking for a biblical name to name your kid, I don't think you want to call him Diotrephes. I guess you can call him Dio for short, but we just see the egotism here in him. Oswald Sanders says this of egotism. Egotism is one of the repulsive manifestations of pride. It is the practice of thinking and speaking much of oneself, the habit of magnifying one's attainment or importance, it leads one to consider everything in the relation to himself rather than in relation to God and the welfare of his people. So, as we looked at Gaius who was hospitable and helpful, Diotrephes is prideful and pratting. Again, clear opposites. John starts off with, with the pride of Diotrephes. We read that he loved to have the preeminence. And he didn't welcome John's visit at all. In fact, John says he does not receive us. Could you imagine not receiving the Apostle John? I mean, that's arrogance. Webster's defined preeminence this way. It's like having paramount rank, dignity, or importance. In other words, Diotrephes saw himself as superior, more important than everybody else. He wanted this notoriety. So when, that, when, when, when he walks into a room, man, everything's supposed to flow through him. You know, how he feels about things is how everyone else is supposed to feel about things. Why? Because he's preeminent. 
You know, he's the one people should be paying attention to and listen to. See, it all boils back down to pride. John wanted to come out the same John who walked with Jesus, the same John who talked with Jesus, the same John who was told to take care of my mom from Jesus, the same John that anyone in their right mind would welcome into their homes just to glean some wisdom and experience of spending time with, with this man who spent time with Jesus. And Dio says, no, no, he'll make me look bad. John was a threat to him. And, that, and, then, and that's the reason he finds himself not only prideful, but he's also prating. Look at verse 10. He's prating against us with malicious words. I mean, what a guy. The word prat there means to talk on and on about something. One that just goes on and on and on talking about nothing over and over and over again. Now, you better not say that sounds like your pastor, okay? I'll have a problem with that. But what John is saying here is that Diotrephes has been going on and on and on about John with malicious words. Malicious words. In other words, he's been making false accusations against a real leader in the name of lifting himself up by putting someone else down. And how sad that is. How sad, especially when you realize who puts people in the position of authority. Listen to Romans 13, verse 1. Paul says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. The word appointed there in Romans chapter 13 is the word ordained. Let me read it again in the, and, uh, with replacing that, the, the word ordained in there that way. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are ordained by God. My point is that God is the one who has established people in position of authority, and they need to be shown respect, even our newly elected President of the United States. Because there is an order that God has ordained. He's ordained it in government. Just as there is an order that he's ordained in our homes. And of course, uh, in the home, it's parents. They're, they're overseeing their children. They're supervising their children. We move to the ministry of the husband and the wife. And, and, and the husband, the Bible says, is actually the head of the wife. Though some today would smirk at that. It makes perfect sense. I heard someone say, anything with two heads is a freak. Um, I heard that said. It's true. You can't have a husband and a wife with equal authority. The buck stops with the husband. That's the way God ordered it. But God says, hey, listen, kids, you have to answer to your parents when it comes to somebody that actually has to give an account for his family. Husbands, the responsibility falls on you. And when it comes to the government, again, God ordains it and says, I put those people in a place, a position, so you need to obey them. That's what they're there for. Unless they do something or call you to do something unbiblical or, or, or sin. But when it comes to the church, and this is what we're talking about here. God has placed in leadership in place those in the church. And God says you need to listen and obey them. That's what they're there for. They're, they're, they're looking out for you. Now, why is that important? Well, because here in our text we have leadership in place. And it's none other than the Apostle John. Yet Diotrephes, he's struggling with that. He's rebelling against them. And he's going so far as even rejecting them altogether. And he's spreading that all around in the church, causing problems. I remember years ago hearing a story from Pastor Chuck Swindoll about an elder that met him as a, at his office in a new church that he was about to pastor. As Chuck was sitting there at his desk, the elder walked into his office, took out his revolver, unloaded the bullets onto his desk, picked them up and put them back one at a time, spun it, and then said to Pastor Chuck, I just want you to know who's in charge here. Pastor Chuck says, he took that as a threat. <laughs> yeah, I would too. Not the type of guy you want going to your church. 
That's what diatrophies was. He's choosing to reject the apostolic authority, and the scripture says when, when you do that, man, you're just going to bring judgment upon yourself. You're making false accusations against a leader in the name of lifting yourself up, putting yourself down. That's sin. So the bottom line, John says to us, and to diatrophies, hey, if you don't like the church, find another. But to stay in that place where you're, you don't respect the pastor and you're always putting him down and, and you don't really admire the leadership and you find yourself prating and find yourself prideful, sharing your preeminence and how you think things should be different, you're only going to bring yourself judgment upon yourself. That was diatrophies. Going the direct opposition to a letter that John said, encouraging the believers to open up their homes to the itinerant preachers. Diatrophies is saying, if you do, you're out of here. I'm going to kick you out of the church. In fact, look at verse 10, the last half. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. I mean, imagine this guy. He's excommunicating anybody who would not entertain these men John had recommended. That's horrible. And this guy, he's a, he's a church wrecker. I mean, and, and, and the sad situation, there's a lot of men like that in churches, in Christian churches and circles today. But I like what John says next in verse 10. He says, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. Ooh. I mean, here's that John called the apostle of love, but I think there were still some sons of thunder left in him. Just, just a little bit there. I mean, and I don't blame him. I think there's probably a pretty good thunderstorm when John arrived at this church because he said he was going to deal with diatrophies. It's just too bad other churches don't deal with diatrophies type people in the same way. Because they'll, they'll wreck the church if they're permitted to go on. And you may say, well, isn't John being a little vindictive against them? I mean, doesn't it sound like he's trying to get even with them? Not at all. John was a shepherd. And he loved the sheep. He loved the church. And he's protecting the sheep. And you need to protect the sheep from people like Diotrephes. And the best thing you can do is expose them publicly. Then the sooner the better. Now, you may think, well, that's a little bit hard to name names. Listen. If I have poison sitting on a shelf in my garage, I'm going to put a sign on there that says poison in bright red letters. I'm not going to cover it up and, and put it in with the rest of the stuff. I want people to know that it's poison. I certainly don't want kids to get in there and drink of that poison. That's what John is doing. He says, I love you know, the church enough to let them know that diatrophies is poison. My children who are walking in the truth, I love them. I don't want them to get poisoned by this guy. This prideful, prating man is causing problems by kicking anybody out of the church that doesn't agree with him. So according to John, in this case, he needed to be exposed and expelled. Look at verse 11. John goes on to say, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. We've seen this throughout all our studies in the epistles of John. John emphasizes the one who practices righteousness is a child of God. The one who does not practice righteousness is not born of God. Now this brings us to our final point, our final purpose, person rather, a man named Demetrius. What manner of person is he? Well, he's number three, an example. So we had Gaius, a man who was hospitable and helpful. Diotrephes, a man who was prideful and prating. Now we have this guy, Demetrius, who's an example. Look at verse 12. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. Now, it's thought that Demetrius was one of these itinerant preachers who was coming in and wasn't allowed to come in and was being kicked out of no place to stay. But how much can you really say about this guy, Demetrius, when you really don't have much written about him here except for the fact that we read that he had a, a good testimony? What else 
does it say that he did? It really doesn't. Well, how do we know? Because it's not there. How can we know? Well, there's, there's, so how can we know what he did? Well, there's one thing that is there for sure, and that's his name. His name got in the Bible. I mean, think about this. I mean, there is his name in Third John for all to see, and, and it says Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. That's a great legacy to leave. In the same way, there are a handful of folks in, in the body of Christ that are like Demetrius. Man, when you ask, what do you like about Demetrius? You would say, man, what don't I like about him? There's so much to like about this guy. Yeah, but, but what did he do? Whatever he can. He does whatever he can, wherever there's a need. Demetrius is the kind of guy when he walks up, he's ready to help wherever. And he, he does so without even being asked. Man, that if you had a dictionary with a guy's picture and underneath it, it would read, great guy. You know, here's Demetrius, great guy. And I, I would have to say, folks, we have a whole lot of Demetriuses at our church. Men and women who love the Lord so much, they just want to bless and they just want to serve. That's why they're here. And they want to serve wherever they can. And we're so blessed. Now, I know, last week, Pastor Dennis mentioned that. He said that it was in his opinion, not mine. If you're not serving in this church, you shouldn't be going to this church. Now, I want you to know, I didn't say that, okay? He said that. I want you to stay, even though you're not serving, okay? But I will say this. You're missing out on the blessings that come from being a Demetrius, from being a servant. Demetrius was that kind of guy that showed up for church ready to serve and was excited about doing so. It wasn't drudgery. Listen, we've been talking about what manner of persons we are. We're not mascots, but what manner of persons do we represent? If John was writing verse 12 here about us, in other words, if John was writing to Calvary Chapel an email, when he got to verse 12 and he puts your name there instead of Demetrius, would it fit? Would it fit? Or would it fit with the other guys? Gaius has the manner of an encourager. Diotrephes, the manner of an egotist. Demetrius, he had the manner of a, a real example, a good example. Do you see yourself in one of these three men? Hopefully an encourager and a real example. As we close and we get ready to enter into communion, John says, look at these verses, verses 13 and 14. He says, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. I love that. John says, I could write to you, but man, I love fellowship with you. I love seeing you face to face. I love just spending that time with you. And here we end the third epistle of John. And we see the differences between different people in the church. Some who grow, some who are hospitable, those who don't, who are closed, who are haughty and proud like, like diatrophies. Listen, we should never be content with where you're at. You should never reach a plateau in your spiritual walk and say, I've grown as much as I need to grow. I read through the Bible once. That's all I need to do. No. We need, in a sense, a healthy dissatisfaction that would cause us to pursue after the Lord with all of our hearts. David walked with the Lord and he said this, As deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God, in Psalm 42.1. It's like the Selah I posted in our bulletin uh, last week, a quote by A.W. Tozer who said this, what I'm anxious to see in Christian believers is a beautiful paradox. I want to see in them the joy of finding God while at the same time they are blessedly pursuing Him. I want to see in them the great joy of knowing God yet always wanting Him. 
Or as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already attained, I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. See, as we get ready to, to, to close and enter into a time of communion, it's really a great time to examine our hearts and to seek the Lord and to pray and ask the Lord to transform us into that man, into that woman that God has called us to be. Are we being that servant that God asked us to be? Are we loving those around us? Are we leaving an example of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ? Are we using our gifts of hospitality? Are we being helpful? David prayed in Psalm 139, 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. What a perfect time and opportunity for us as we prepare our hearts for communion. To ask, Lord, to search our hearts. To see, Lord. Now, I want to say this. As we get ready to pass out the bread and, and, the, and the juice, we're going to hold on to it. We're going to partake it as a church together. Uh, but the most important thing is that you need to make sure that, that if you're going to partake with us, that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Above everything else, that's why we do communion, to remind us of what Jesus Christ has did with us. Otherwise, it's just a tradition. It's just a ritual. So if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to make that commitment to follow Jesus Christ this morning. Just say, Lord, I want to follow you from this day forward. I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me of that. You say that in your heart. You say that to the Lord. And God will come into your life. He'll forgive you of your sin. You can be born again. And you can remember this time of communion. Remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. So if you're not a believer, give your heart to the Lord Jesus this morning. Surrender your life to Him. For those that are you know, it's a time just to say, Lord, search me. Help me to be the person, the man, the woman you've called me to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have this morning, Lord, to come to the communion table. Lord, come to this time that we can come before your throne. Lord, we can find grace and mercy in time of need. Lord, we can confess our sin. We know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, it's a time we can open up our hearts to you and knowing, Lord, looking back at the cross and what you did upon the cross to take my sin, our sin upon yourself, to cleanse us from all sin and to give us this new life, Lord. It's a time to come back and say, Lord, how am I doing? Lord, where are the areas in my life where I need improvement? Lord, show me. Shine the Holy Spirit light upon my life and help me, Lord, to see. Are there areas where I can be more helpful, more hospitable? Lord, I'm just more of a servant. Lord, has my testimony been one that people would say, man, what a great testimony that person has. Have I been in your word? Have I been breathing? And do I love your truth? Lord, help us to do that which you've called us to do. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.